Dartmouth 98 Shorts, nine minutes for eight questions. We'll be catching up with our fascinating classmates, hearing about their lives, careers, and adventures since graduation. I'm Kelly Wardwell-Ryerson. Hi, I'm Roger Griesmeyer. I couldn't be more excited about who we have today on Dartmouth 98 Shorts, Matt Roth. Matt is a thought leader in agriculture and the future of farming. Matt Roth is a designer, teacher, and farmer. Matt is a co-founder of Blue Ocean Barns, a contributing member to the executive team of The Kitchen Town and the founder and principal of Crazy Baited Design. Matt describes the mix of all of this as his ikigai. Previously, Matt co-founded the Feed Collaborative at Stanford University, where he was an educator, practitioner, and design thinking and food system innovation. He was also a fellow at Stanford's prestigious D-School, director of Stanford's Sustainable Food Program, and an operations executive at both Atune Foods and Nyman Ranch. Raised on a 10,000-acre conventional corn farm on the plains of Colorado, Matt's more formal degrees include a BA in Environmental Earth Science from Dartmouth College and an MBA from the Graduate School of Business at Stanford. Welcome, Matt. Any words for your fellow 98s before we get started? Uh, well, no. First of all, uh, Roger and Kelly, it's, it's a pleasure to be here. And um, I, uh, as I was thinking about coming on, I was just uh, reminded of a flood of wonderful memories of my time at uh, Dartmouth and uh, send to all of my friends there who might be listening to this my, my best regards and wishing that we will see one another as soon as possible. Yeah, 25th reunion's coming up. Yeah, it's coming up. I know. I'm looking forward to it. Okay, the clock will start. And I have the first question. Okay. One of your latest ventures, Blue Ocean Barns, has gotten a lot of press the last couple of years. What's the most interesting thing you're working on there right now? Yeah, so Blue Ocean Barns is solving the problem of methane emissions from cattle, which uh, is a a really big problem with respect to climate change uh, collectively, globally. Uh, all cows in the world produce more greenhouse gases than all of the cars on the planet. Um, so we are working to solve that problem by way of growing a particular seaweed called Asparagopsis taxiformis, which when fed in very small amounts to cattle virtually eliminates their methane emissions. And the amount we're talking about is like two to three grams per cow, which is about the same amount of salt that you and I consume in our diets every day. The most interesting thing I'm working on right now is the our, designing our ability to scale up production of the seaweed that we're trying to produce. The process literally begins by going, or has begun by literally going out into the ocean, which is about 100 yards from my office right now, collecting pinchfuls of this seaweed from, from tide pools, going through a process of selecting for like ideal specimens, cleaning them, and then going through that process iteratively um, for several months now. And now we're in a place where those little bits of material are on the order of kilograms of material. And what I'm focused on right now is designing the production system that will take kilograms to millions of kilograms of material over the next couple of years. Matt, you've compared your food journey with the Johnny Cash song, I've Been Everywhere. Can you give us a taste, pun intended, of that journey? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I, well, first of all, I, you know, I grew up on a very large conventional corn farm in Colorado, as you mentioned at the, at the front, um, which I think really kind of set up for me a, a pretty broad perspective of just how messed up our food system is. And so for me, that's, that's led on this journey that has um, crossed a lot of different uh, areas within the industry and a lot of uh, specific jobs therein. Um, each one of them has, I think, contributed a lot to my understanding of the system, but the range of them has, has included uh, washing dishes for a number of uh, different restaurants in my time, including in high school at Dartmouth and after Dartmouth. My mom likes to joke that I might be the only Ivy League graduate who ever washed dishes to earn money after graduating from Dartmouth. 
Um, so the sum of my experiences has really been a journey of, of, of you know, and sometimes intentionally and sometimes just opportunistically understanding the food system from very different perspectives, which I think, you know, has laddered up to a, a career that now really informs my point of view moving forward. From what we found online, it seems you've been a success at pretty much every turn you've taken in your career. Have there been any missteps? And if so, what did you learn from them that helped you out on your next move? Yeah, well, I appreciate that. It certainly doesn't feel like a string of successes from my perspective. Um, I, but I, I do think that um, you're probably the greatest mistake I made in terms of you know, like jobs that I've had and work that I've done um, was to take a job out of uh, business school. Uh, at the time, my dad was sick. Um, he needed help running the farm, so I had to step, step in and do that. But it really kind of took my – and I'm glad I did that. It was a wonderful year to spend with him doing that before he passed away. But it really kind of took me away from thinking about what I wanted to do with my career. And I ended up taking a job out of business school with a startup that, you know, for, for all intents and purposes, it was a really great company, um, a, a great product. But I realized after a couple of years of doing that work that I was really in, in that company, in that role for the wrong reasons. Um, I, decided, I decided to take you know, a position there as a founding executive really more for the equity and for the potential upside of that than for what the company was really trying to do by way of its products and services and our relationship and, and needs that we were trying to solve for uh, our customers. And, and so I think I just I realized that, that you know, through that experience that uh, for me personally, I really need to be focused on things that I find really meaningful that are really trying to solve important problems in the world. At Crazy Beta Design, you're helping people and organizations innovate. Can you explain the human-centered quantitative data part of that process? Yeah. So, you know, in my experience of working with as a consultant, you know, so typically I'm hired to help organizations think about how they can become you know, generally more innovative. And, and really where that starts is with um, developing competencies in, in innovative practices with, within teams, within executive teams, you know, within kind of building that into the culture. The, the human-centered quantitative piece of it is that most organizations, I think this is generally a true statement, uh, certainly true of the organizations that I work with, is that they tend to depend on data as almost certainly their primary and in a lot of cases their exclusive source for making decisions about the company. And I think um, you know, what I try to bring into that perspective is a, a human-centered lens on top of that. So that you can think about data as telling you the what and a human-centered perspective or human-centered design tells you the why. So your data may say that consumers, for example, prefer this or that for um, over this, over this, or that option. Human-centered design is really trying to understand well, why do they prefer those things? And then the sum of those perspectives ultimately le leads to a much better understanding of the needs and the motivations that your customers or your clients have, which then in turn gives you the ability to design products and services for them that better meet those needs. I think it's a, it's a pretty unique perspective to bring into organizations who you know, tend to be focused mostly on data and using data to drive their decisions. Turning to Dartmouth, what was your favorite spot on campus? Yeah, what's interesting about my experience at Dartmouth is that um, I never felt like while I was there, I ever really had a sense of the cardinal directions. It's like the only place I've ever lived in the world where I, like, I could never really remember like where is north and south and east and west. And so it's hard for me. And I don't know why that is. Maybe it was just the, the cloud cover for like what felt like the entire first year for us. Um, 
But my favorite place, uh, I think it was south of town. I, you know, I lived in uh, what was known on campus as, as the time, at the time as the Crack House, which has since been condemned and uh, replaced. But behind the Crack House, just down the road, uh, was a little uh, trail, um, an earthen path that led off into the woods and eventually connected to the AT Trail. And I found a lot of solace and kind of... Um, uh, that, that was kind of the place that I would go when I really needed to just kind of step back and, and really lean into my introversion. And, and so I have very fond memories of spending a lot of time in those woods, just running around, exploring and discovering. Name one food that you tried for the first time between 1994 and 1998. And was it at Dartmouth or with any cl- Dartmouth classmates? When I think of food, especially at Dartmouth, what I remember most distinctly was full fare. And uh, eating there, uh, I came into Dartmouth playing on the football team. And so we would go there you know, several times a day together. I mean, you know, dozens of us. Um, and we would eat at Full Fair. And I just remember being amazed by how much food we were eating. I, I, like, to think about that in the context of today where, I mean, the amount I eat now, I mean, I was eating an order of magnitude more than. Um, the thing that actually does stick out from that experience uh, was the jello. And I'd had jello before, but I'd never had, for whatever reason, the kind of jello that they were making at, at Full Fair, and it was absolutely delicious. That was fine for you. I came home and had to lose 15 pounds. <laughs> yeah. From Full Fair, like alone. <laughs> well, as it turns out, so did I. So. <laughs> what important life lesson have you learned and can share? The most important people in this world are your friends and family. And I think it's important to make sure that you set as an objective and a goal to connect with them regularly, to make that a point in your life. Um, I think you have to work at relationships, and I think maintaining those relationships is the most important thing that one can do. And it's certainly been true for me. And finally, Canadian jazz singer and radio host Tim Tomashiro has spoken frequently about Ikigai, which he boils down for him to be to delight. Can you briefly explain what Ikigai means to you and boil yours down to two words for our classmates? If I were to boil down Ikigai to two words, it would be finding purpose. Thanks so much, Matt. Sounds like you're on the right track to really restoring the integrity of our planet. I, I, I think so too. I, I hope so, at least. You know, we're, we're, making a, we're making a good go of it here. Agreed. Thanks, Matt. And thanks all of our listeners. If anyone wants to reach out to Matt, we'll put a link to his contact information in the notes to this episode. Thanks so much and see you next time.